design. Beauty. You can see it. You can feel it. At Cosentino, art and science become one, creating products and materials that give rise to unique spaces, that bring life to your designs. Through our network of Cosentino City immersive showrooms, a robust distribution network, and Cosentino reps near you, ready to support you every step of the way. The one-stop shop to let your creativity soar. Let's create together. From NYC by Design, this is The Mic, a podcast that offers an inside look into New York City's most creative minds. I'm your host, Debbie Millman. From projects to products, inspirations, and more, join us each episode as I talk to members of New York City's design community about what makes design so outstanding. On this episode of The Mic, we are recording in front of a live audience here at the Cosentino New York City showroom. I'm thrilled to be joined today by three experts in their respective fields, an interior designer, a materials scientist, and a business and marketing expert to explore how we can make our homes feel personal and unique while still being mindful of the materials we use. Please join me in welcoming interior designer Antonio Deloach, materials scientist, executive vice president of materials at Material Connection and chief material scientist at Material Bank, Dr. Andrew Dent, and Pablo Abad, the regional director for Cosentino North America. Over the next 40 or so minutes, we'll discuss how surface materials can impact our health, our happiness, and personal spaces in unexpected ways. Join us as we explore how we can make our homes beautiful and bright in a holistic way. Our very first guest is Mr. Antonio Deloach, who has been designing for 10 years. His new design studio is in Harlem, and it's located on the historic block of Strivers Row. He also maintains a presence in Los Angeles. He gets up every day to change the way people live through art, light, and design. He has worked on projects ranging from studio apartments in Hong Kong to estates in the Hamptons to sprawling ranch homes in Ojai, California. Each project is an exploration of the client and how they will live in the space. He started his design business in 2014 with the goal to bring quality as well as affordable design to everyone. Our next guest is Pablo Abad. He is the regional director at Cosentino North America, overseeing the Atlantic region. He's been doing this since January 2023. In his role, Pablo is responsible for sales and distribution for seven business units and two centers, Boston and Manhattan. A 10-year veteran at the company, Pablo began working at the Cosentino's corporate headquarters in Spain in the business strategy and marketing divisions before transferring to Singapore as general manager and later to regional director for Southeast Asia. Our third and final guest is Dr. Andrew Dent, who is the executive vice president of materials research and material connection and the chief material scientist at Material Bank. 
who is known for his integrated approach to problem solving, one of the world's leading authorities on materials in design. Andrew has helped clients from startups and Fortune 500 companies take their products and spaces to the next level through innovative material selection and a unique cross-industry perspective. Welcome, gentlemen. Thank you, Debbie. Absolutely. I want to begin today's episode by talking about how materials shape each of your work. And I want to start with question, two questions for Andrew. I have two questions sure. back to back for you. First, what is material science and how did you discover this particular line of work? Okay, so material science is basically the study, the sourcing and improvement of materials. Like think about basically your space around you. Everything is material-based. So we as material scientists are helping engineers and people find better, I guess, better basis for those materials themselves. So whether it's the chair, whether it's the flooring, whether it's the glass, material scientists are always developing, creating new versions of those materials to improve, whether it's greater durability, different colors, greater strength, that sort of thing. And how did I get into it? Well, I didn't have the ego to be an architect. I didn't have the intelligence to become an engineer. So in between those two, you have the sort of material science, which is kind of this little runty engineering discipline, which nevertheless has an awful lot of importance. You know, there, there aren't so many of us as civil engineers, mechanical engineers, but I think we do play a vital role. And what it does, it gives us a, a wonderful grounding in the physical space. So, you know, my great joy is that I know what every single thing in this place is made of. I know how to make it, I know how to make it better. So that to me gives you a very, very sort of real appreciation of our physical world. We could have an entire episode <laughs> on just that answer. However, my second question is this. Can you talk about your grandmother's string jar and how it helped form your ideas of thrifting? So basically, I, I hate throwing things away. My, my, my grandmother hated throwing things away. And she sort of, she passed that down to me. So my clothes, my interiors are of my apartment, everything I have, I always try to find a second life. I'm able to darn my socks. Everything gets repaired. So my idea is that, because I love materials so much, don't think of it as throw away. You know, I think about a plastic water bottle. That's an engineering marvel. The ability to withstand all sorts of different environments and yet still maintain ultra clear, pure water for like probably for the next hundred years, that to me is, is, is amazing. Like why would you want to then take that amazing engineering marvel and throw it in the trash, throw it out into the, into the sea? To me, that's a complete waste. So I always have such a great appreciation of materials that I, I think people don't sometimes see their value. So I love to value materials and as a result, I don't want to get rid of them. I want to somehow find a second life and another use for them. I, I highly recommend Andrew's TED Talk. I learned so much about materials. I didn't know, for example, that about 80% of car parts are recycled from other cars. I think yep. that's so cool. Antonio, my next two questions are for you. How has your work as an interior designer and your relationship with materiality evolved over the years? Thank you, Debbie. I think that's a great question. So like when I hear the word materiality out of that whole sentence, the thing that I is my big takeaway is quality, 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 right? If we think about its definition is how do we as designers put the best quality out there for our clients? I think it's one of our biggest fears is I don't ever want to recommend a product to you and 30 days, 60 days, 90 days, heck, get that phone call and say, hey, Antonio, I know that we went this way maybe because of the budget, but it's not holding up. And for me, I say, you know what, let's go way back, right? Let's go back to like Notre Dame or, you know, the Taj Mahal and get to the essence, the 
materials that we used to use, your natural stones, your beautiful hardwoods, and go back to quality. I kind of then think that we landed in the 70s, and then we got to some fun materials like Formica and vinyl and stuff that wasn't so sexy. And then we have evolved, and we've got amazing people like Andrew that does what he does, to be able to then take those materials and make them better. Who would have ever thought that we would have put the word luxury in front of the word vinyl? I would have never thought that those two things would go together, but great people that do what you do have now submerged them into water, have manufactured them in ways that look real to the touch. So for us as designers, it's kind of ever evolving. And how do we really put quality first? The folks at NYC by Design always do a really good job of inviting guests that have these very interesting overlaps. And so as I was doing my research on you all, I found Andrew's TED Talk and learned about his grandmother's thrift jar, her string jar, where she was really re-thrifting and reusing so many things. And so then I found this quote of yours, and you've said that taking a non-functional space and transforming it into the most popular room in the home is a dream come true. And I sort of felt like that was like thrifting rooms. And, And so I was wondering, why do you feel that way? And can you talk a little bit about how you do that? Sure. I got a great opportunity and it was kind of one of those aha moments in my career. I'd done the Brooklyn Designer Show House last fall. And it's this big 6,000 square foot brownstone, but it's got this fifth floor solarium, tiny little bathroom. And I was the last designer to come on board at three and a half weeks to redesign it. And then they were like, well, we only have one more space, but we really think that you're the man for it. And I was like, okay, great. I'll, I'll take it. And no one would have ever thought that we would have had 10 of us hanging out, having champagne with rubber duckies in the bathtub, like having a blast on the opening evening. But for me, I was like, that was my goal. It was like, how do we take this little five-story, tiny little hideaway bathroom and make it like the star, right? How do we like stand out out of 6,000 square feet, five floors, these fabulous designers. And I was like, how do I stand out, right? So I love to have that conversation with clients. And I'm always the one that like, as you're walking down the hallway, I'm slowly opening up the closet or like, what's in here? What's hiding over here? Why are you not using this space? And asking those discovery questions. And for me, that's like, that's the excitement, right? That's like, We should use every nook and cranny, and I think everything we've all been through in the last couple of years really shows, especially living in New York City, how important every square foot is. And my job is to make sure that it matters. Pablo, you have been working at Cosentino for a very long time. What keeps you here? That's a good question. I've just arrived to New York City. He wasn't expecting that question. uh, No, but really, I think Cosentino is a... It's a company, it's an organization, it's a family business where since I started, kind of by chance, as most of us start in different paths in our career, is the passion that, that everybody has. It's a family business in a very small village in the middle of nowhere in the desert in South Spain, in Almeria. And it's how we, or from the founders to everybody in the company, we just thrive to be better every day to do better products, to to really understand what happens away. And hard to imagine that in such a small, really remote village, when I arrived there, it was like, if you want to go to the cinema, you have to drive for one hour. 
<laughs> or wow. that was the closest. Really like, need mold. to want to see that movie badly. <laughs> but I didn't go very often. But uh, <laughs> or quite visit. But no, it's really a, an organization that we really try to look and learn. It's very global. It's, even the company Spanish. Eight percent of our sales are are in Spain. Everything is uh, outside. USA is fifty five percent of our market. We are. So thankful to to everybody in this country to to allow us to to continue growing, and it's about what we learn about people like these minds. <laughs> like at the beginning when we were trying to design as a stone company, it's kind of boring. We try to do, if we try to do the same as everybody else is doing, we don't innovate. We do the same. We are just one more. But when we really, I think, we took to the next step of what we were doing, is when we started to say, okay, let's stop focusing on the market by itself, what is there today. Let's think on the future. Let's think what should we create to make a better world. And at the beginning, looking for stone is not something you would probably imagine, but everyone can do a better world. And it was about engaging with designers, understanding the market, making sure everybody in the organization was able to pass the feedback on what do we do next. And that's how we anticipate to the demand. And it's thanks to, to people like you, some of the most successful colors we had were by chance. There was one uh, called Trillium, for example. It's uh, one of our most successful colors. That was a test with all the waste that we had with, uh, with Decton in the factory. We, had, we call it the mountain, which is getting smaller and smaller. A waste of Decton production of other colors, which we kept there because we wanted to reuse. And then they did some tests of how to put them all together, create a new colors. And there were a group of 10 designers from the US in the factory. They came to see, oh, by the way, they're kind of playing with the slabs. They made this and they loved it. So it's a color kind of like a metal, rusty, gray, brownish. But soon it became, we launched it as uh, we trusted the designers. Yeah, Andrew's it, like, yeah, I know this one. But it was really like a lucky accident. It became top five worldwide. I, I think it was top two in the U.S. for a long time. Still in the top, top five. But that's about uh, creating, listening, being sustainable, and listening to what people were, were telling us. That can be a great color, and it's something nobody else had created before. So this is a question for all three of you. And, Andrew, I'd love for you to kick off the first answer. The term holistic relates to or is concerned with holes or with complete systems rather than with the individual parts. What does a holistic home look like to each of you? Okay, so actually, I'd like to reference the Trillium. It's a great material. I think the reason why it was so successful is because you could you you knew its provenance. You knew where it came from. There was this feeling that like, okay, I know these materials because in a lot of solid surfacing, you think, okay, well, what's that made? I'm not sure. You know, it's obviously it sometimes looks like stone, sometimes not. But for Trillium, you thought, okay, you've told me exactly what it was. It was something that was part of your existing manufacturing. Okay, it's a waste material, but for me, that's that's a major part of it. Part of the holistic approach is to give a home an understanding that it came from somewhere else. Mm -hmm. The materials where they were where where were they sourced? You know, so the idea that every material, no material disappears, basically it goes on a journey. So it, hopefully it, it starts off maybe at your manufacturing plant, maybe from recycled materials, it comes into the home, maybe it's then got another journey as well. So the idea is that when you bring together a whole bunch of materials in a more holistic approach, you're understanding they're all on a journey and therefore if they need to kind of work together. So I think for me, holistic is understanding each of the materials, knowing what it is, knowing what it's made of and, and 
you know, I don't want to get so poetic and feel like whether they work well together, but I think there's a certain part to that. So, you know, knowing if material comes from a local foundry or local place, then you can understand there is a, a sort of a geographical connection between those. So for me, whenever thinking about holistic, you know, beyond just circular economy and sustainability, it's all about a story to tell in each material, you know, and therefore then you feel like the home becomes almost a part of the family. Antonio, what about you? What does a holistic home mean to you? I love that all three of us have three totally different definitions of this listening to Andrew. And I'm like, yes, that makes a total sense for me. But. <laughs> but from a design standpoint and just like humanity, right? As like humans, I feel like a holistic home is like one that greets you in the afternoon. It's part of that journey, like Andrew just said. It's one that rises with you in the morning. It's one that kind of holds you as you're entertaining. And it's all of these little nuances. Like I've been lucky and fortunate enough to be 23 countries that I've visited so far. I've lived in Hong Kong. I've studied in Paris. Like it's been a blessing, but I take all of that with me, right? And you find that in the smallest little trinket that's like next to the TV to the vase that like I wrapped in bubble and held on my lap. That material means something, right? Like I can go back to a fabric from a woman in Thailand that like was holding on to it that her grandmother gave her, but it was in the back of the shop and leave it to the designer. I found it and fell in love with it and she passed it on to me. And I hope to continue to do the same thing. And I think that's the beauty in our home is to be able to take all those little nuances, all of the little materials and tell your story in that journey and have your home hold you in that process. So it feels like living a very spiritual life yeah. in, in this way. Pablo? Well, so I think uh, agreeing with your points of view, another different one, I think a holistic home is it's just a place where you want to be, where you want everything to have a meaning. You probably less and less people have a TV at home nowadays. I don't have one. We have our things. We have our other devices. But in the end, I think it's something where everything, you should like it. Uh, everything that is there should be there for, for a reason and not just getting things there, putting in places and replacing them. This sustainability that we keep talking about and having in mind is not just about uh, being able to reuse, but being able to really have a thought back. Do I really need this? Does it really make my life better? Do I really want this in yeah, that space? Everything is precious. Yeah. So when we do materials, for example, relating to that, I'm more of a numbers person. I didn't understand much of our design colors thing sometimes. We just want the colors to be launched fast because the market is, I want new colors. I want new collections to be able to, yeah. to sell. And we can be like two or three years developing a new color. And then you talk to our head of R&D, Valentin. No, no, because we need a little shade here in the vein. We need to create something. But it really, that's what makes everything different is we don't want to be just one more and just launch for launching. We prefer not to have anything new until we are not completely convinced. And then when we have something and then the designers come, no, I don't like it. This needs to be darker. <laughs> but that's what really makes us come and keep improving. And I think that's also part of the holistic uh, concept that we all have on, on moving forward. You mentioned sustainability. And what are some misconceptions about buzzwords like sustainability and eco-conscience when it comes to materials for the home? This is another question I'd like you all to, to think about. 
Well, in my opinion, everyone keeps talking about sustainability. Everyone says they are sustainable. It's like a trend to say that you are sustainable, which I get it. I mean, there is a, a bigger demand. But I think sustainability or the way we try to look at it is really as try to be a better citizen as humans, as organizations, as designers. It's not just about reusing, but it's about a concept. It's let's try to be better, not just to us, but environment. And we're a business. We're an organization. We don't just try to be sustainable because we want to save. But when we are a better citizen now, I mean, there is a demand for it. The fact that we are very proud. Our best marketing tool is our factory. People come there to see how we do things, the solar plant, that we recycle everything. But we didn't do it just to bring people. We also do it for the future. When the gas prices skyrocketed last year in, in Europe, that was a benefit. We now have companies that want to talk to us because how do we do things? Because our carbon footprint. So I think sustainability shouldn't be something that we just talk about it emptily and say, hey, I'm, I'm more sustainable because I recycle and I have to recycle because I want to say that I'm sustainable. But it's really a way of being better, being better to the rest. And in the end, we create this sense of community that we are all connected with each other. And if I want to be better, you want to be better, you want to be better. In the end, we will find a point in which we'll collide and we'll just do better together. As you think about your answers, I'm wondering, are there in the materiality sort of category, are there standards for sustainability? Or can you just say that it's sustainable? Uh, not at all, no. There, <laughs> there are many standards and certifications. Um, you know, you can have more, you know, whole building things, lead and bream, and things like that. Uh, there's also well-built building standards. So there are many, many certifications. And certainly, I would say that the interior design profession is probably more certified and better assessed than any, any, almost any other industry. Oh, good. Um, at least any industry where, where we as average designers can actually select materials. It's different in automotive because Ford decides what, what materials Ford uses. You, you know, as an average person, you don't get to choose, whereas interior designers can choose. So, yes, very well certified. California, as an example. Yeah. It, right? It, yes. It's probably one of the most strict certified yep. states out of all the U.S. And I think, you know, so go for the certifications. Yes, of course, if you're trying to do that. And, and But I think going back to your holistic, I think there's a whole bunch of other things, which is also ease of use, duration of use, ease of cleanability, that sort of thing. So I think... You know, we deal with an awful lot of sustainable new innovations. So whether it's using bio biomaterials, whether it's using all sorts of different innovations which are claimed to be sustainable, we always have to compare that to, okay, well, if it's bio-based, is it going to last as long? Will it look as good in five years' time? Because if I have to pull it out after five years, maybe it wasn't such a right solution after all. Understand that this is a lot longer-lasting experience. If it's in my home, it'll last for a long time. So therefore, you need to, to, to consider those as well. Yes, Innovation is great, but also there are other considerations when it comes to the use of that product or material. I'm sure um, Costantino knows all the certifications, is certified. I think one other thing I'd like to consider as well is that, yes, for me, ultimately, when it comes to interiors, we need to be reducing carbon footprint. Because a lot of products I ask, well, the choice is, do you want to drown in water or do you want to drown in trash? So for a lot of our consumer mm -hmm. products, yes, we make too much. But for interiors, it's very much about the energy consumption. So, you know, a, a better manufacturing plant reducing the amount of carbon footprint, ensuring that you've got distribution locations so you don't travel too far. So I think there's an awful lot of that as well. It's, it's understanding that holistically in your home and in the building, that we need to bring down in carbon footprint. Efficient materials, ones that last long, so you don't have to do so much with them, that sort of thing. 
How do you define healthy materials? So I think healthy materials, that's a difficult question, but I think it's most things are not unhealthy <laughs> nowadays. <laughs> but I think there's a big difference but, between healthy yeah, yeah, yeah. and not unhealthy. <laughs> uh, absolutely. So <laughs> it's not like going to the grocery store. Right? Yeah. So being healthy is, as what you said, something that you want there to remain. Uh, it's against the concept of this fast fashion that you wear it once and you throw, you want to replace it. And hey, for, for manufacturers of material, it would be good if people keep replacing everywhere from a financial point of view. But this is not what we want to be in the long term. We want to deliver something that is close to perfection. And I think that's healthy as well. Something that when you see it, you feel better. And that happens with material as it happens with everything around you. So I think being able to have long-lasting performing products, something that this innovation is not just having the new thing that is different to the rest, but something that will stick for a long time in terms of design. And I think that's what everyone is looking. Uh, yeah. Antonio, design me a house that I will still love it after <laughs> 20 years. We can, I can afford goal. to do it again. So. Yeah. You just call me for the refresh. Um, but I think to connect your two questions, right? Like what is a healthy product? And then the buzzword of sustainability. And I think that as long as we start to put those two together, right? Mm -hmm. I don't feel, I feel like there's still a delta. I think that there's still a gap where we're like, it's sustainable-ish, but it's healthy and it's good for the environment. We need to fill in the gap of that ish moment. So this way that we start to genuinely understand that it can be, it's a yes and, right? It is sustainable and it can also be healthy. And here are the five reasons why, right? You know, I go back to rugs, right? So if you look at the rug pad underneath, back in the day they used to, and even I can't say back in the days, so it was really only a couple of years ago that they started to change the glue that they used. So doing that additional research, that glue will then break off and then become a dust particle. You're now inhaling that dust particle, not healthy anymore. And that can cause like cancer and have other like carcinogens attached to that, right? So doing that, our due diligence, right? I think that us as designers, as creatives, as marketing, as, you know, people who do what we do, right? We love the world of design. We have a level of responsibility, I think, to start to bridge that gap of what is sustainable and making it no longer a trend. I had spoke on a panel on sustainability at High Point Market, which is the biggest furniture market in the world last fall. And I felt responsible. Like I felt like this is the last day of market. I now have to like what is sustainability? Like, am I sustainable? Like, where on the green chart am I, right? So I was touring through market for like four or five days and asking my vendors, like, well, it says it's made with recycled water bottles. Can you tell me more? And half of them couldn't really speak to it. But how are you supposed to empower us as designers to go back in and empower others with the good news, right? So it was interesting because I feel like we have the ability like a camera to change our lens. And I think once we start to put the green lens on, that we'll be able to start to bridge that gap. Andrew, would you like to add anything to that? Sure, I can do a purely chemistry uh, aspect. Okay? Yes, so sure. When it comes to, yeah, so purely in terms of materials and chemistry, there's two types of healthy. There's active and passive. Okay, passive is something like Decton. It's a material that's inert. You talk about luxury vinyl tile. Like modern luxury vinyl tile, they've removed the phthalates, which used to off-gas, 
Cool. Um, basically, the new car smell is basically off-gassing of phthalates in your car. Hmm. Not a good thing. Uh, it's actually yeah, it's an endocrine disruptor. So we've removed some of those things. So, so that is now a much more passive material. It may contain chemicals that aren't particularly good or you, you can't recycle, but at least while it's in your home, it won't do anything about it. So that's a passive, not healthy, but certainly not unhealthy material. Then you have active. Active is basically where you have um, glass or coatings or paints or, or tiles that actually suck out some of the toxins in the air. Now, these are much fewer, but I think there's irrelevance there. So you can actually have a home where the idea is that you're absorbing any of the toxins that exist. So therefore, that becomes an active one. So it's actively trying to develop a much more healthy environment. Of course, good HVAC systems, that sort of thing, fair enough. But certainly, yes, there are now actively healthy materials that you can do to promote better air conditions within our can I just take Andrew with me shopping with my clients? Because I'm telling Get you, in like, line. You're, I'm, you're, no, like, I'm sold. I, I don't know. know what he's selling, but I want it. And if I could just have you in front of my clients, it's been like, he's telling you the truth. And here are the 17 reasons why I would be a way more successful designer by having you stand behind me. So, Well, here's a question that I think builds on that a little bit. How has what you've learned as a designer, how has what you've learned about materials informed the environments that you're designing. A hundred percent. I mean, I noticed that even in my own home during the pandemic, as I was, you know, moving furniture around and following the light, right? So I think for me as a designer, it's always evolving. And I think that's kind of the fun part, right? It's getting clients excited to allow the evolution to happen and really giving them the tools and the knowledge to kind of understand why it's so important. So we had a day and age where vinyl was often used, and now we have luxury vinyl. And there's all sorts of different things that have been repositioned sure. over time. And I kind of love the psychology behind that repositioning. From your perspectives and, and your various lines of work, what was deemed as sort of highly sought after in the world of materials for the home in the past and how have those expectations changed over the last couple of decades? Well, I, I think you I know everybody that. just like, okay, Andrew. <laughs> no, I, I think the elephant in the room is plastic. You know, mm. whether it's luxury vinyl tile, whether it's the coatings we use, whether it's the chairs. Benjamin, been... plastic. <laughs> right. It, it's, it's a challenge that, you know, that was a material that was so effective beautiful to color, inexpensive. You can mold it into all sorts of different things. Protects the majority of surfaces. If you go, to, go into surgery, the only, almost the only thing that isn't covered in plastic is a scalpel because it's, it's safe. It's good. It, it allows us to have clean rooms. So plastic was this wonderful material that solved so many of our problems. And now we understand it's got some real challenges. So I think it's interesting. A lot of the clients that we work with are now trying to work out how to remove a lot of the plastic from that. And, and a lot of it's not even noticeable. The majority of wood surfaces, the majority of metal surfaces, will actually have, apart from stainless steel, will actually have a plastic coating on them. You know, why it looks so good as brass or copper is because there's some plastic on top. Really? Yeah. How was that manufactured? How, and why do we not know that? Well, well it, it, the reason you have it is because brass very quickly tarnishes. And it tarnishes in, in ways that you don't want. So you'll force it. If it's a nice color brass, it's covered in plastic. Copper, same thing. Bronze, same thing. Stainless steel is fine. But, you know, of every other metal, it's, it's going to be coated. I find it so interesting because when you said plastic immediately, like that, your light bulb went off to the answer to her question. And it made me think I was just, I, I don't think our clients are educated enough 
to know that like, I mean, we're all like sitting there, like there's plastic on top of our copper and it keeps it from tarnishing. Right. So like, I wouldn't have thought plastic immediately as, you know, one of those top products, but I think it's, yeah, I mean, it has been great, but I think yeah, that's the challenge is that what do we do? Like, cause we want a better solution. We want more authentic materials, but we also want to make sure it looks clean and great for, for, you know, 10 years. So it's caught between the two worlds because you can have brass, but it'll, it'll tarnish, it'll look authentic in certain ways, but a lot of people don't want that. So that's the challenge. But what about just polishing it? You, you want to polish it? <laughs> I don't want to polish it. <laughs> I heard your story about marble. I think she'd be down to polish. Yeah, I, I, was, I was talking to the gentleman about having a decorator choose some marble for my bathroom seven years ago that my contractor was like, that's way too soft. It's going to stain. It's going to chip. And she was like, no, but it's beautiful and it needs to be in this bathroom. And seven, eight years later, I'm like, it's stained and it's chipped. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm sad. <laughs> yeah, I find it so interesting that some of these materials that, again, they get these buzzwords attached to it, right? Like Carrera marble or you know, natural hardwoods or copper, or then there was like this matte brass finish, but we're not going deeper, right? And to actually see what's lasting over time, I think it's so interesting how it's just constantly evolving and that we get so hooked onto these buzzwords, but we're actually not taking off that surface level. Well, do you think that in terms of thinking about wellness and environmental mindfulness and sustainability, is that always a good thing to be thinking about? Is there ever a darker side that we have to be aware of when thinking about these things? Well, I think this is also about not to get crazy. Uh, be just better and improving and improving, but because a product has a less carbon footprint or it's, uh, it's more sustainable on this wide definition, is not automatically better than everything else. Why? Why is that? We also need to look for functionality. I mean, maybe something is very sustainable, but it's just ugly or it's something that, <laughs> no, it's not going to last for, for a long time. Look, I think we need to keep a balance. And uh, look, we try to get all the certifications, but it's okay, make it sustainable, but make it durable, make it something I still want to wish to maintain. So I think it's, it's all a little bit of a fine balance. And I think now, not because I have a sustainable product, people are going to love it and are going to have it for one or for the rest of their lives or they're going to want to use it. So I think it's important to keep sustainability in mind on just improving on everything that we do. But let's not take everything else away and let's take a step by step and make improvement because that's the way to make it sustainable. And keep <laughs> it here, yeah, like for years to come. I, I lived in LA for eight years and it was like, the obsession, right? Like I had some clients that were like sold on the bandwagon, like it had to have every certification. But like when you really start to drill in and ask the, the deeper questions, they couldn't tell you like why. They were just like, well, so-and-so has attached their name to it, so it's got to be a good thing, right? And I think a asking that why is like, why do you want it? Like, why are you attaching yourself to this trend? And I think that we're seeing this shift of trend versus lifestyle. Mm. Um, and I think that we're seeing a little bit more of lifestyle happening in that eco-sustainable material space when we're looking at it. Can you explain, so, you, so explain the difference between the trend and lifestyle, because I'm not quite getting it yet. So is it to do with the people are following, are following a particular lifestyle rather than looking at trends? Yeah, I think that people are actually really, it might be the opposite. 
Okay, sorry. Uh, that's okay. <laughs> sorry. So I think that, you know, we get attached to social media. We have all of these influencers. Someone's wearing a plastic dress on the runway and, you know, making a stance. And you attach yourself to that trend. And we see trends on every forefront. I think that now that people are actually starting to adapt sustainability, I think that as sustainable products is becoming more readily available, that it's now becoming more of a lifestyle. And people are starting to say, okay, I can put the trend on the shelf, but I'm actually going to embody that. And I'm, I want that for me, for my family. So this way that now it's not just a right now thing, that it's actually going to be the thing that's going to stand the test of time and be here for years to come. Thank you. You're welcome. Yeah, I think the trends tend to be more opportunistic. Yeah. And mm -hmm. lifestyle tends to be something that has some, one would hope, some longevity to it. Yeah. But it's interesting in, in terms of looking at trends and fads, how over time things that are of the moment tend to be more expensive. They're not always of the best quality because they're still in that experimental phase. Sure. And certainly in the case of food, doesn't always taste great. You yeah. know, when we first started <laughs> getting the gluten-free products, not they were so all cute. awful. Yeah. Now, a lot of them are a lot better. So what does the future of interiors look like from your perspectives based on what you've learned about the past now in the current moment and what do you imagine and foresee for the future? I'd love to hear from all of you. And it looks like Antonio, you are ready. Well, I mean, I think you just, it's a topic of conversation because like you hit the word, the luxury market, right? Sometimes the word luxury and sustainable, like almost don't go hand in hand, right? If you've got that kind of money, you're just like, sure. Like I want the $25,000 sofa, I don't care how it's made, right? And I got enough money, so I'm just going to hand it down or get rid of it and change it out. So I think that it's it's going to be interesting to see that evolution with it. I, uh, for me, my con if I had a concern, it was that the I don't want the engineers and the number crunches to take over. Because I think with sustainability, a lot of it ends up as numbers. Whether you do a life cycle analysis, whether you do an EPD, HPD, a lot of it then comes down to numbers. So therefore, as a result, do you end up with less? If you're trying to do the right thing, you're trying to do the lifestyle rather than the trend, does it then reduce the number of opportunities, you know, materials that you have? Because if you're trying to hit the numbers, trying to make sure it's as sustainable as possible, lower carbon footprint, then I've only got two materials to choose from. And I think that's, that's my concern, is that mm. if we do it, if sustainability often isn't that interesting because it forces us to make choices which aren't always the ones we want to make, they're the things we should make. And no one likes to have that. But do you do you foresee a time where the innovation in in these categories will be such that we will have more options? Yes, that, that's why I think innovation is, needs to always go alongside sustainability. You always need to be improved. I always use the example of the iPod and iTunes. Like that was a, that was in terms of sustainability, that was a massive improvement. Basically, no more going to the store, no more picking up CDs, etc. So that was an innovation that changed completely that the the overall carbon footprint of purchasing music. But that well, wasn't the intent. It, it wasn't, but innovation itself can create unintended right. consequences. Yes. So yes, we need to keep innovating. We shouldn't just be looking for the most sustainable. We should say, let's innovate. Let's find th new things. And as a result, we'll end up with greater availability. So you've got, yes, you've got the number crunches, the engineers, but also have the creatives alongside to, to develop these wonderful new things. I think we're sitting in it today, right here at Costantino, to look at how many of your product is sustainable where this wasn't available 10 years ago, right? So I think that it's 
like to the evolution part of it, that it's here and we're hoping to see more SKUs across the line. Like I go to market and to be able to see 50 rugs or a hundred rugs that are made with recycled water bottles and fibers versus maybe five years ago, there was three or four, right? It's just so, so true. Yep. So now it's kind of this fun discovery, right? It's just like trying to actually seek it out. And I think that we're seeing more available than ever before. And like I said, sitting in Cosentino is like a perfectly good example. Like this showroom wasn't here 10 years ago and they didn't have the SKUs and the line items that they have today. So Pablo, the last word with you. What does the future of our interiors and materiality look like? Sure, so no, thank you to for, for your words on, on what we are doing, but that's really thanks to thanks to you, thanks to, to the design community. Yeah, because we expect it. And I think the more that designers can expect innovation and sustainability You're hand in see. hand. Yeah. And that's where we're going. I think that's that's the future. It's not a company is not gonna define the future, but maybe Apple. But <laughs> but it's about <clears throat> what is the what is the people wanting? So right now, I think another big change was this uh, pandemic. People are staying home a little bit longer. People started to think more of their homes. A huge difference. Great business for, for a lot of us on, on that mindset. But in the end, people are also wanting more sustainable material. People are also wanting something new, but also go back to the classic, but more perfect. Mm -hmm. People are thinking about more durable materials. So I think this sustainability is not just an effort, I'm gonna make something with less carbon footprint. That's just something. It's about where are we going? And it's in the end what everybody is, is demanding. The, the society is evolving. The materials are evolving on the same way. And why there are 50 types of racks that are more sustainable? Yeah. Because people want it. Yeah. Because people, people care. And when people care, manufacturers improve. Uh, you also have that in mind because in the end, everybody has an audience. Our demand is an audience, and I think that's how it's going to keep evolving. And I think the main thing is, yeah, looking at the future where people really care about building a better world. Yeah, I think it's bright. I think the future for design is bright. I mean, to be able to see architecture changing, the way that we're living from air purifications to countertops to lighting to just the the off-gassing you're seeing less of, I think the future for design is exciting. I think we're at this like amazing moment that's just bright for design today. Gentlemen, thank you so much for joining me here today at the Cosentino showroom to talk about materials and sustainability and what I hope will be a very optimistic future for us all. I'd like to thank everybody here for joining us today for this special edition of NYC by Designs the Mic. Thank you to our guests, Antonio Deloach, Dr. Andrew Dent, Pablo Abad, for their generosity in sharing their knowledge and their insights. Thank you also to Cosentino for sharing their space with us, for being our partner and supporting this episode. Follow at NYC by Design on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter, and subscribe to the newsletter for the latest in New York City design.